Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. Um, I should probably start this show by wishing everybody a very Merry Christmas, uh, as this is the this will be the sort of the, the Christmas episode, so to speak. This will be uh, hopefully seeing people through some some drives across across the country, some drives home, uh, back to to teenage and childhood bedrooms where you may have uh, <laughs> well, who knows what you may have done, but there was certainly some video games involved uh, at some point. So I was going to ask people actually if if you have any kind of if you discover any old video game memories or memorabilia around your house if you're home for Christmas. Um, please do send them along, and I'll I'll share them around. I think that'll be a really fun Christmas activity for us all. Um, and the the episode for this week is is an absolute treat, continuing the the December trend of speaking to developers who've made some of my favourite games of the year. Uh, this week, my guest is Alex Preston, who is the founder of Heart Machine and one of the creators of Hyper Light Drifter, which is uh, oh, it's a, it's such a good game. Um, like we we talk about it in the show, obviously it comes up, but it does this really special thing like to kind of tie into the kind of christmas theme i remember the very first year i got uh chrono trigger that was my christmas game one year and it was just it was incredible like it was mind-blowing and it just felt so alien to to everything else that i'd experienced to that point in my life which it seems hyperbole but but it's really not like it was really i had no context for it necessarily it was just this kind of portal into this magical world that i just wasn't familiar with with like dashing frogs and heartbreaking robots it was wonderful and hyperlight drifter like it seems built to kind of give that same sensation that feeling of of wonder in being somewhere that is just so alien and, and magical and it's it's a really wonderful game and the chat with with alex is it's a real treat i think you'll you'll really enjoy it as always thanks so much for listening to the show and um, seeing me through another year of episodes or there's still one more to go before the end of the year um thanks i i hope people you know if this is your first episode please dig into the archives all that stuff um and uh, you can follow the show on twitter it's at checkpoint show or it's forward slash checkpoints podcast on facebook it's very important to have consistent branding and if you'd like to get in touch it's uh, checkpoints podcast at gmail.com or you can just, you know, send a message on uh, Facebook or Twitter and, and do follow, give us a like, etc. If you really love the show, um, I do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. If you have the the money and the inclination, um, all donations are, are very gratefully received and used to kind of help me make the show as good as I, I possibly can. And I've got some very exciting ideas lined up for, for 2017. Um, so... Um, I am going to wish all of you a very wonderful, very happy and Merry Christmas. And I think like, you know, these kind of Christmas messages, the show is coming out at Christmas. Of course, I'm going to say something about Merry Christmas. And oftentimes it, it kind of it can come across as kind of uh, perfunctory, I suppose. But I think this year more than ever, like I think we really uh, we all deserve to really indulge in, in the Christmas spirit. And re- regardless of whether anyone believes in or not, the whole idea of having 
a specific holiday just to get together with old friends and family and just be nice to each other and give presents and all of this wonderful stuff. I think it's it's really worth uh, indulging in that to the best of our abilities. You know, I'd encourage people to seek out old friends, you know, dig out an old video game console, play some games together, have fun, and really, really enjoy enjoy your Christmas. I'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. tell you what we'll do i'll do like a, a formal introduction so for the for the sake of the show uh, alex welcome uh, thanks so much for coming on if you don't mind would you introduce yourself yeah i'm alex preston i'm the creator of heart machine and hyperlight drifter um and here i am still alive <laughs> and whereabouts are you you're you're on the west coast right yeah i'm on the west coast i'm in la and is that where you were from originally or uh i'm, I'm from uh hawaii oh uh, cool but i was i was raised here in southern california for most of my life so it, this is a, actually a thing i wonder if what you think about this because i've been speaking to uh, a lot of devs recently and you know the, the classic thing of you know the resurgence of, of indie games because of the democratization of tools and stuff one of the things that has come up is that it seems that certain because so many people are able to make games now, certain cities are taking on, uh, kind of getting their own not not genre but their own style of games in much the same way you would have like in music scenes like you know ten twenty years ago. Uh, do you do you feel that? Do you notice that? Like, is there like an East Coast West Coast style of indie game? If you know what I mean. Um, not necessarily. I, I think what I see more of is the indie games community as a whole is so spread out across the world but we have such close-knit ties because of um the internet um because of the shows that we all commonly go to like all the different paxes and gdc yeah uh, and even e3 to extent like you know the music scene developed in a very different way because um they were catering to smaller audiences in local areas like the new york or east coast area or yeah. you know, los angeles or the west coast area and that was what it was limited to but because of this age this era that we live in where connectivity is uh, a basic staple of life it's very different um there's definitely people that you know they want to do retro games and that's that's their jam um, or people that want to do very experimental games and they want to say something unique and interesting um, that's never been done before in games. And so they try uh, they try to do that. Um, and there's groups that stick with that. But for the most part, I think it's a very inclusive community and you, there's not a lot of cliques dividing us and there's not a lot of very specific genres within indie games itself. They're like, oh, we only do these kinds of games. Yeah. I think... Everybody kind of talks to everybody and is influenced by everybody just because we're all connected throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, this is the, I kind of, I've been on a run recently the past couple of weeks, actually. I've spoken to a lot of people and it's, you know, it's become, I mean, I knew that it was quite a, a close knit community as most kind of creative communities tend to be. But um, it seems to be every, every other episode I'm talking to somebody who I, 
and they they start talking about somebody I was like just speaking to the day before or the day before that. So like I was speaking, for instance, I was speaking to um, Rich Freeland yesterday, a uh, disaster piece, and he mm-hmm. was obviously talking about working on Hyperlight Drifter, and he mentioned he was playing Virginia, and I'd spoken to the guy who made Virginia the week before that, and it is very much like close knit. Um, but I think that's you know that's that's natural because people are attracted to other people who like the things that they do. Um, yeah. Well, let, let, let's let's go back then, Alex. If you can, if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Um, from like my hazy memories as a child, when uh, we had an Atari um, back in the day, I was super young and I, I could barely remember um, anything with that. So I guess my like most solid memory was playing my NES with my brother, my older brother, and just watching him play video games um whether it be zelda uh or the first mario or duck hunt we play together but you were like this is kind of would you be have been playing games then or just like this is just very early memories um i was i was watching him play a lot of games and participating where i could because there are plenty of single player games back then that i just wasn't up good enough to do and i had to see him beat them but there were also co-op or multiplayer games that we could play together so it was a it was one of those dynamics where it's like I enjoyed both of those yes. um, aspects of, of gaming with my brother um, equally. But so like you grew up in a house where games were just always a thing. It was never like, you know, here are video games. I think you're kind of young enough to sort of have have them be like ever present through your, your kind of childhood, basically. Yeah, I mean, uh, I was a Nintendo kid, um, and then a PC kid, but always kind of a Nintendo kid. And I was I was lower middle class. I wasn't super poor, broke, but we certainly didn't have a whole lot of money. We had to scrounge and scrape, yeah. and you know, we'd get we'd get an NES and one game, and we'd have to rent everything else. Um, never really bought a whole lot of games. Same thing with our SNES, where it's like, here's your SNES. You're not getting any games for it ever again. Unless, unless you go sell, uh, unless you go recycle some cans and save up for three years. <laughs> uh, was it always just like a thing that you know, like a, a family thing, or did was there ever a point where you started to sort of take ownership of it and say, right, I'm I'm getting these games. This is what I want to do. Yeah, I mean, we. I was much deeper into the video into the video game aspect of my life than anybody else in the family was. Um, mostly as my brother and I playing games together, but he at a certain point because he went to boarding school. And so, and of course my sister wasn't that interested in that stuff um, ultimately. So I, I ended up just playing a lot of games with friends or alone um, and then really getting in PC gaming at a certain point as well. And what sort of games when you were like young, do you think really made an impression on you or kind of really stuck with you as like, oh, this was a, an amazing experience or this changed what I thought about games? Um, you know, I uh, <laughs> one of the weird ones early on, because I was so young and because I had an affection for this character, was uh, an old Godzilla game for, for NES. Okay. Um, it was actually a really shitty Godzilla game where <laughs> you'd play this, you'd go on this hex map um, and choose a space, and you'd be, and you'd see the layout of the monsters, um, and then you'd enter a side-scrolling level, and the controls are terrible. 
um, you know, it was really clunky. But for me, at that age, I was so young. I was like five or six or something. Um, I loved it because I used to sleep with this giant, like, 12-inch uh, replica toy of Godzilla when I was a kid. That's how much <laughs> I loved the character. So anything interactive with this character was amazing to me. Uh, so, you know, that was that was the first time that I felt a deep emotional attachment to a video game yeah. as a kid. Um, realizing later on, like, oh, this is a trashy game. But, I, you know, I have that affinity for it. <laughs> but your toy um, was in it, so it's amazing. Yeah. Well, not just the toy, like this character that I loved. Yeah. Um, the toy was just a representation of this character that I saw on film all the time. Um, How did you and... see Godzilla on film all the time? That, that seems like a relatively obscure thing for a, a kid's to be into well i mean we have vhs tapes and we would buy godzilla movies there's plenty of godzilla movies oh god the yeah time. no I'm, I'm there's loads but it's, it's, it's something that i wasn't like i was aware of godzilla i guess there must have been a cartoon or something when i was a kid but it was only like many many years later that i discovered this kind of absolute library of, of old films and a lot of them were great yeah films. i mean one of one of my favorite movies when i was a kid growing up was godzilla 1985 hmm. um obviously i didn't watch it in 1985 because i was one year old at that point but in the in the 90s and the early 90s is like that and terminator 2 were my jams um oh, but yeah 2, i mean yeah. yeah a very violent movie but still like it was a great movie growing oh, up. oh it still holds um, up it's amazing it's still one of the greatest movies ever made. Absolutely. Um, so, I, and you know, that was the first time I had a real, uh, an emotional attachment to any kind of a, a video game experience. Um, but it, as far as like informative in other ways, like design and uh, just realizing like, oh, games, these mm-hmm. are things that I want forever because they're great. I, th- I think, uh, you know, Mario 3 was something that really, really stuck with me. Um and then eventually, uh, linked to the past, not until years after it came out, and my brother purchased it, and we started playing together. And then I picked it up myself um, after he took off for uh, boarding school. That I realized, like, oh, this this is a game that I love. Reasons very differently than all these side-scrolling platformers I've played and everything else. Um, and of course, you know, Final Fantasy VI slash three was was a very uh, deeply ingrained or is a very deeply ingrained uh, game in my mind. It's just seared in there for any number of reasons, um, including the music and, and the characters and all this stuff that, yeah, for the first time, seeing like, oh, whoa, you can have these character arcs, you can have this long, epic story, you can have all these different moments. Like, it was so impressive to see the breadth of that game, like the different things that they're trying to do with it, yeah. when typically in games you just see these very, very this very narrow and focused set of ideas that the developers were executing on which is fun and great and nice but then to see like this scope yeah explode in a game was incredible it's like there's a whole what else is in this game you know there's an opera you know i can fight all these (laughs) different creatures that are optional i can go explore this super open world which at the time seemed very open but you know obviously now it's pretty limited but it, it it blew my mind playing oh and even and dragon quest the first one was really what kind of opened me up to that with rpgs like many kids um in that era was like oh whoa this more open experience because you're so used to linear experiences in games or arcade games which are just quarter munchers or you know one-to-one fighting games or something like that and see these rpgs come in and be like hey this can be a game too 
and it can be a world that you explore and there's all this optional incredible stuff that you can go find and build a story with and and did you story like, was such yeah go ahead did, did, did you like were you like invested enough in kind of broader video game culture that you'd like would you read a bunch of magazines or like would you have would you have essentially what i'm wondering is if you had kind of external information about these games or were you just playing them and experiencing them kind of in isolation i i so i had a subscription for nintendo power okay and i that's all i could afford um but i read every other magazine i could you know i i was going to newsstands all or like grocery stores or whatever and picking up egm and um you know uh, every other game magazine that was out there whether it was trashy or not yeah um you know game pro etc uh but i i fucking loved game magazines and nintendo power in particular because i was a nintendo geek uh, geek yeah so it was, a, it was that was a huge part of it was getting psyched up for a release like you know Mega Man x it was which, the internet before the internet you know it was it was right, where often like the, the you, first sense you of community on, you would you would anticipate this magazine coming in the mail for a month because at the end of it, they'd tease, like, there's a new Mega Man game coming out for the Super Nintendo. You're like, oh, fuck, I cannot wait. <laughs> we're going to show you screenshots. And it's like, oh, my God. And then I'd look, and then when the magazine would come, it'd have that cover on there, and you'd see, like, two screenshots of the game. You'd be like, oh, my God, it's so great. <laughs> and you'd look at those screenshots a thousand times over the course of the next six months or more, you know, like endlessly looking at and reading, pouring over the words they're writing about it. Cause those were the only scraps of information that you actually had available to you. There was nothing else. Yeah. And then you'd read every other magazine and see if they said anything different about it or had a different screenshot. And of course nobody really did. Cause it's not like they were distributing different shots, to different press outlets. Um, but it was intense and it was, and that like, I just I remember the days coming home from school being like I know the magazine's coming in the next couple of days like I'm going to just look at the mailbox immediately and see if it's there and if it's not there that day ah, I do something else to distract myself um, but yeah like I I loved getting my Nintendo Power magazines um, every month because there was something exciting in it and then I remember one of the one of the greatest things that came from uh, Nintendo Power was that Donkey Kong Country VHS uh, VHS tape, where they um, they showed a behind the scenes. I think this has at, come up on the show before. Actually, I can't remember who it was. I've got a feeling it was Greg Rice, but I might be wrong. Oh, maybe yeah. I, that thing kind of blew my mind because you had never really seen how a games development company actually worked i had never seen that and there wasn't a whole lot of information about that yeah you know cause again I, I wasn't online on in the very early days exploring this stuff i didn't really get online until aol and netscape was was a a grounded thing um and so this vhs tape of like hey this is how they made these models. These are the huge machines that they use to render out these characters and these environments. And you got to see the workstations they're using. And actually, they had like interviews with the people. And they showed you these wireframe models. It's like, oh my fucking god, this is crazy. This is amazing. Um, and I watched that tape a million times also because as I was starved for information about this stuff as a kid, it's like I want to know more. And these are the only sources I have. And so that VHS tape got. Uh, really worn down at a certain point <laughs> but did, did you like specifically want to know more like about game development or was that like just your first 
introduction to it and you're like, oh, right, I just want to know more about everything. I always wanted to know more about game development. Like, I wanted to know how they did things and because it was magic to me. Yeah, no, it's, up, it's, like, it's interesting because I don't think a lot of people do necessarily like i certainly didn't as a kid it was just all that their games i i assumed somebody made them somewhere but i never really thought to right investigate you know why and how obviously it's fascinating well, me now but i didn't seek it out essentially well a lot of people still don't know how no, games yeah. are made it's like there's plenty of information out there now and documentaries and everything else that show the process behind it and people who live stream development like there is the the information's there. It's just a matter of if you want it. But, you know, there's still plenty of people, I would say the same percentage of the population, uh, maybe a little less, that knows just as little as we did back then about how games are actually made beyond those in the industry. Um, and for me, again, growing up, I was like, I, because this magic was happening in front of my eyes where, like, these worlds were being developed and, like, obviously an artist created this thing and, Mario Paint was the seminal thing for me because, you know, it was like, oh, whoa, I can make these sprites animate. I can make this music happen. It's like, this is how games are made. They piece it together pixel by pixel. And they lay out these synthesizer, these synthesized sounds and, and string them together um, on these strips of craft paper, basically. Yeah. And... Um, which is not too far from the truth. You know, you look at the old, the first uh, Super Mario Brothers and like, yeah, they laid all the levels out on graph paper. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And so, so I, like, were you like purposefully thinking this is what I want to do like at that young of an age? Like, or were you just interested in the process? I didn't quite wrap my mind around the idea that I wanted to make, um, I wanted to fully pledge myself to making video games at the time. I was still figuring out, like, shit, man, I love comic books. Like, I was deep into comics and yeah. wanted to draw comics and write stories and maybe write a novel or something else. So, you know, games were there and they were a fascination and a huge part of my life. But so was, you know, film and, and anime and comic books and toys and all sorts of other stuff. So it was hard to focus as a kid when you have, like, a treasure trove of interesting pop culture coming at you and yeah. you're absorbed in um so it wasn't until later on when i was able to parse what i did and did not want to do um that i was that i decided i really wanted to make video games going back to the the magazines for a second like one of the things that has come up on the show a lot is is how because it was kind of pre-internet the the magazines were the first sense of community and a, a first sense of thinking oh there's other people out there that love video games and are excited about games as i am because you know everyone will have their kind of friend groups that they play games with but there's always i don't know maybe not always but you you get a sense that some people are just way more into it than others and finding sure. that community is is super exciting did you feel like that did you have friends around you that were really into games like you were yeah absolutely i uh you know a neighbor of mine down the street like five houses down he didn't care about console games he had a game boy at one point so he liked that but he had a he always had a good pc he was always upgrading his pc um again like we were we were all like lower middle class so not totally broke but we'd spend all our money on like one thing and that's what we got for like the next three four years and we got no other presents basically yeah like, he would spend it on pcs and so i'd go to his house to play you know all the upcoming pc games like command and conquer and whatever else and be like Shit, why don't i have that i want that too or warcraft or warcraft 2 or or even at a certain point starcraft where it's like i just didn't have the computer to even 
play this stuff at a certain point because um, I was focused on a lot of other things and specifically on consoles. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was great to at least share. Or like, you know, another friend had a Sega Genesis where it's like, when you're a kid and you're in that, um, when you're in that bracket, it's like you can really only afford one thing. And so you have to go to friends' house houses to experience these different systems and these different games and get an idea of what's out there. Um, and so that was that was kind of the joy of it, also. Yeah, totally. Where it's like you didn't you didn't have a, a space on the internet just to watch videos of Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever else. You'd you'd have a magazine preview and be like, "Whoa, that game looks cool." Too bad I'll I can't buy it. And I, I'll have to like beg my friend to buy it for his system so we can just play it together, or rent it or something, you know. Like, and I, I sometimes I would even rent a game for the Genesis just to go take it to a friend's house if I was really, really curious about. I the had game. done the exact same thing as a kid, and yeah, I think it was like Sonic Two, in fact. Yeah, I, I think, I, I think it was, for me it was uh, Sonic and Knuckles. Um, uh, okay. That's a much yeah, more like game. It's a good game, Sonic and Knuckles. It was. Uh, yeah. It's kind of forgotten a little. There were good parts to it, <laughs> um, but yeah, and and the magazines too. Like it did the same kind of thing where, uh, you know, I I loved watching uh, or reading all these letters to the editors. I loved looking at the fan art on the mail, uh, on the envelopes that people do, and I ended up submitting fan art uh, on envelopes as well. So which um, which magazine? And a power. Nintendo Power. To Nintendo Power and to EGM because I like I wanted to get featured on that stuff. Did you get featured? Um, I am th- pretty sure that I eventually got a Smash sixty four envelope featured in one of the magazines. So that was way that was way later in life when I was actually confident enough to send something in like that. So did 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 your kind of interest ever wane, or were you always like as you got older, just I'm into games, like this is always my thing. Um, yeah, you know, I was deep into it. I was deep into the culture. I was deep into the the things that everyone was creating. Um, like it just, it was a big part of my life growing up and a big part of, um, who I am today and like why I love the things that I love. Cause it was something, it was doing something different than just movies or television or comics yeah. in a way that couldn't be done before. So that to me fast was so fascinating. So how did your relationship change then as you got older? Was it just getting whatever successive consoles they were? I mean, did you stick with Nintendo? Um, you know, I think as I started to get older, um, I was able to actually afford to buy some things myself. You know, like the N64, I, uh, I helped save up for that. Um, and so that became more my console than anything. And that, that was a time where, you know, my brother was totally gone at boarding school at that point. And my sister had no interest at all, really, um, in video games, like, except for Mario Kart, which we would play together every once in a while. Um, but it was me starting to go down this tunnel um, and starting to realize the things that can be done with video games. Um, because it introduced me to a new era where it's like, oh, 3D. Yeah. This is amazing. Same with PlayStation, where it's like, yeah, I had played some 3D games on the PC, but again, I didn't have a PC powerful enough to drive that stuff. It's always going to my friend's house and playing, you know, like a star, a 3D Star Wars game or Need for Speed or something, where it's like, this is amazing, but... And I'd played Star Fox uh, on SNES, which was incredible to me, but the, uh, this N64 is the first time where I saw the kinds of... the potential and, like, the kinds of worlds 
um, that could be created and, and how absorbed you can get into it. Uh, and yeah, with the whole like world building stuff, you know, if, if you're fascinated yeah. with that, with you know Final Fantasy and stuff, you're going to be even more blown away by Ocarina of Time and Mario 64 and things like that. Yeah, so the games. first time the, the first time I played the N64 is like somebody uh, at this local import shop in my hometown um, had bought a couple of Japanese N64s, um, which came out on my birthday actually, um, back in back in the day, and they would charge you five dollars an hour to play Mario 64, and it was so worth it to me, even though that's all I had in my account was like five bucks um, to go play this game early and experience it, and it it blew my mind. Like this Mario 64 destroyed my mind. It's like, Oh my God, this, these are video games now. Yeah. No, it's like, it's I love, I love Yoshi's Island and whatever else. And there are incredible things happening there, but there was like these 3d worlds are like, Holy, this is like, you're recreating an entire world here. And I'm so deeply absorbed into it. Again, it, it, it was that feeling of this is magical once again, hitting me that I hadn't had in a couple of years because the Super Nintendo became a thing. It was like, yeah, I get it. I get what video games are. They're super fun and I love them, but I'm not, I'm not like ensconcing them. And then the 64 yeah. changed. It was like, oh my, whoa, okay, this is this is life changing. Um, and you know, from there, it's like I, I started to really dig in and, and try and figure out like, what, how are they making these things uh, happen? And you started to get more information about that too um about like especially with um i don't know when they're talking about newer console power and everything else i was starting to understand the architecture of computers because i um was getting into that age where it's like now i can start to make money now i can build my own computer now i can yeah. do these things and i was starting to reconcile like how a processor worked and how a gpu worked and how memory functioned and like maybe starting to get into code and understand how that works so the n64 era was really when i i started to get into the inner workings of games and figure out how these incredible creations were actually being constructed and why do you think you got so deep into it like in terms of the the sort of technical know-how was that just like a byproduct of building your own pc or had you started thinking oh maybe i could maybe i could make them i i'm just curious like i would you know we had an old car battery in the back of our house because my dad's a junk collector um and i tried to rip that thing apart when i was young just because i wanted to see what it was and how it worked so you know and i was playing with legos since i was a baby because i've and making the thing in the instructions and then immediately ripping it apart and trying to make a robot out of it it's like i just i had a natural curiosity for how things worked and deconstructing that and then trying to reconstruct that as well so you know games were just the thing that i was most interested in ultimately because it was able to produce this world that I could escape into um, and like completely fabricate myself if I could ever harness that kind of power. And so like at this point you, you've got the PC, did you, did you start sort of trying to make things or were you just still pulling things apart and seeing how they worked? I had both, you know, like I, I used a lot of RPG maker back in the day um, because I was, I didn't have a lot of tools available to me and like most people. And I was not a coder, you know, my brain doesn't work like that. Um, and I was primarily an artist, um, an illustrator, a writer, you know, these other things where coding didn't come, you no know, programming didn't come naturally to me. And so I didn't really want to deal with that as much. And so I tried some of these more visual, um, engines like RPG maker to, craft something to craft an experience and that and even that was like a, a really formative experience of like oh yeah okay this is 
this is how you set timers, this is how you set up these different NPCs, you have to account for all these different components interacting with one another, um, and trying to break down, like, how a game works from top to bottom, yeah. even just in an accrued um, old engine that was pretty limited in what it could and could not do. What sort of games did you make resources. in RPG Maker? Oh, just pure garbage. Nothing good. <laughs> but it was fun, and it was interesting. It was like, cool, I'm going to rip all these Final Fantasy sprites, or the, all these Chrono Trigger sprites, and it's going to look dope as hell. And it's like, nah, it just looks like trash. So you're doing basically uh, fanfic RPGs. Yeah, but I never released anything to anybody. I just, it was like... No, no, no. It's no more, it, it was more experimental for myself, you know? No, I... I, I like, I, I've been talking to a lot of people recently about the, the potential for for remix in games where it's still something that hasn't really been explored that much i mean largely because of like copyright issues but you know the, the, there was kind of a brief period where there were a few like i remember the uh was it barclay shut up and jam and where they, they mm -hmm. kind of made these rpgs i'm assuming probably in something like rpg maker um but just using like old sprites from video games to make this ridiculous story and they, they you know they were relatively entertaining i just think there's a lot there's a lot that could be done with that but it seems to have kind of died off a bit well i think there's so many tools available now and there's a lot of unique ideas out there that yeah. people have so like want to do their own thing and there's plenty of stuff that's like a remix or a riff on something that people loved it's just tweaked enough that it's their own and i appreciate that more than i would like hey let me just rip final fantasy sprites and make final fantasy <laughs> fanfic version you know what is this is like um a recurring <clears throat> question on the show what is your your favorite final fantasy if you had to choose uh, one. Three. Three slash six. I, I'd say six because whatever. Whatever, America. You blew it. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think by far and away, it's like six was one of those things where I had enjoyed RPGs up until then, um, including Dragon Quest, which was like one of the two Nintendo games that I owned. But six, I, I had skipped a lot of the other Final Fantasies. Or in fact, I had skipped pretty much all the Final Fantasies until that one, because I had played other RPGs like Breath of Fire um, and Secret of Mana and some others. Uh, but that was the first Final Fantasy that I actually got into and played, and I could not stop playing that game. And I loved it to death, and again, it did something that no other game was doing at the time that I hadn't seen um, with the music that was epic and the story that was epic and like the scope of the game that was epic. And it just, it felt like it was an unlimited, a game with unlimited possibilities and openness and the amount of characters you could interact with. It's like the depth of that game blew me away. Um, so I, you know, I'm not a big fan of seven. I think seven fell short in a lot of ways. So uh, 12 no, I know that's, just that's to, blasphemous to correct it. no it's, it's not I don't like 7 either 12 is the best one just that is the, the correct answer but it's fine that you have your own uh, opinion um, it's absolutely <laughs> I would fine. accept 9 also as the uh, correct answer uh, <laughs> I just like I, like I just like the Gambit system in 12 this is a recurring joke I think it's one of the greatest things in video games that nobody has ever not many people have really utilised again the remakes coming out so maybe maybe that will inspire some more people to do it yeah well uh, squaresoft was really good at creating systems oh and, amazingly um you know like even even the stuff in 10 for as much as people kind of loathe that orb system or whatever the upgrades the spheres or whatever the hell it was called it's like it was super interesting and intricate and unique and they they were all about creating crazy systems for all their different games and i loved it you know like i was 
that's fantastic. And they've kind of lost that in, in the last bunch of years where it's like, oh, yeah, kind of generic RPG again, where you're doing the same things. And you lose that innovation and just like raw systems, you know, where it's like some dude on a spreadsheet is making something creative and then integrate, injecting it into this game, which is awesome. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm tentatively optimistic about the new one, although I played the demo and I didn't really like it so much, but I'm hoping that. that uh, just uh, 15, 15 or whatever. Yeah, the, 15 that's coming Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be great at all. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I have no confidence in, in new Final Fantasy games, except for the one previous to that, the MMO, which somehow turned out to be a good game, even after it was a terrible game. <laughs> well, it did. It was. It did stick around for a long time, and it continues to stick around. So they clearly yeah, did something Yeah, but I mean, like the right. fact that it that they made a bad MMO and then completely remade it into something that's actually one of the legit best Final Fantasies out there in a long, long time is really impressive. Um, and it's in a totally different team and everything. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, Fifteen, I don't think is going to do it for me. I, considering what thirteen and all that series did, I'm just like, I don't think this is the series for me anymore. There's, there's always the remake of twelve, which is out next year, which will be, or the wonderful. remake of seven, which is going to be more of fifteen, basically. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, so, when actually no, I tell you what, this this seems like an appropriate point to do like some relatively quick fire questions. Um, so, Alex, what game are you best at if you had to play a game with death for your soul? Uh, Smash 64. Is that Super just Smash through uh, playing endless hours with friends? Yeah, I mean, since that game came out, like, I've played, I don't know how many hundreds of hours of that game, if not a thousand plus, like... I've played that game more than anything, and I know the ins and outs in pretty intricately of that thing, um, and I'm pretty confident in my skills with it, just because, you know, I've played it with so many different people at so many different times. I've not always been successful. It's like, I don't think I'm the best Smash player, Smash 64 player out there, but yeah. um, I would feel very confident in trying to tackle that, where other games I'd second-guess myself. Why do you think that resonated so much with you? I th because I love fighting games, because of the feel of that game was so great, because it combined all these amazing Nintendo characters that I have such an affinity for, and because it was a party game in the, in this perfect time where I had these friends or family or everybody, like, they wanted to also play, yeah. and it was super accessible. Like, Street Fighter was kind of that at its time, but Smash was even more accessible um, so that people who didn't even care about fighting games wanted to play this, you know? It's it's a weird one, Smash. I I never understood uh, Smash. I could never really get into it. And a friend of mine, Rodri, he's a he's a game designer. He he tried to explain it to me. He said, "What what you have to realize is that this is just marbles, and don't approach it like a fighting game. Approach it like a game of marbles." And I did actually genuinely start to enjoy it a lot more after that because it's yeah, all about right, the just... ring eight system. Yeah, it's marbles is a good way of thinking about it, and also it's like a mixture of rock paper scissor. Like it's very yeah. simple. Like this move beats that move. And did you um, ever fighting play games like... are all about this move beats that move? But Smash Brothers is very distilled. Yeah. Did you ever play competitively? No, no. I mean, I've played like some small tournaments or whatever, but I never went into the Smash scene because I just you know I was doing other things at the time. Yeah. And well, that that leads on to the next question, which is: uh, Are you a competitive gamer? Do you get competitive? 
Um, I can be competitive about video games, but I would not label myself a actual competitive gamer, like in any professional sense of the word. No, I just mean like, have you have you lost months uh, competing in high score battles or things like that? Oh, for sure. I mean, we'd play like Smash Melee at lunchtime um, every day for like months and months while when that game was out. I'd bring my GameCube in just to play during our lunch hour, and I would definitely get riled up. And I'm a big Street Fighter fan. Like, I still play Street Fighter online to get my get my jollies. The, the latest ones, uh, 5, or do you stick with the older ones? Yeah, 5 and 4. Um, I was a big 2 fan. I, I love 3, but I didn't have anybody around at that time, so I never got into it as much as other people did. Yeah. Um, is there, has there ever been a game that you've played that you've had to... Uh, walk away from because it was just consuming your life far too much um maybe diablo 2 but you know i have it didn't it didn't bother me because i was young and i had a summer and it's like what else was i gonna do um so <laughs> so it's like yeah i just play diablo constantly uh or diablo 2 constantly it wasn't a big deal but no i was never like a person that got so entrenched in wow that I, in fact, don't like WoW very much. I just, I never, I never liked how it felt. Um, so, and I didn't have the community to jump into it. Yeah. My, my first, like, deep MMO dive was Fantasy Star Online for Dreamcast, actually. Um, Magical game. It was a, that was an amazing game. And, you know, having that 56K dial-up connection and making stuff work and, like, it all worked. That was the thing that blows my mind it, whenever it I think back is how it all just worked and it was fine. It was incredible. And, um, you know, Destiny's kind of carrying on the torch of that um, in, in a lot of ways. It's very much PSO. Oh, absolutely, um, so, yeah. So I got I got pretty absorbed down to the mags and everything. So it's like I got pretty absorbed into Destiny as a go-to dumb game to, like, sit down and shoot things for a couple hours and relax because uh, PSO is that for me. Where it's absolutely, like I can just grind yeah. with a group for a couple of hours a night and boy that was fun and it, it it released some endorphins and that's it i think if you could replace your ghost with a, a little floating dreamcast that'd be the thing that'd pull me back into into destiny just yeah. totally rip off all the old mags from pso or or put it in third person entirely and just put mags in there and it'd be oh, good to go i know so i know that there's a fantasy star online too that's supposed to be pretty decent but you know, I just don't want to go through the hassle of getting like a Japanese credit card or you know, credits or whatever I have to do and getting and translating patches yeah, and all yeah. these things. I have a lot of other things to do. I just, <laughs> ugh, that's too much work. It's too much work. Um, if if you are if you are a person who is prone to such things, uh, what was your worst rage quit? Um, yeah, I mean, who isn't? Who plays? Who that has played video games intensely hasn't raged quit at some point, whether it's like alone or online or whatever else. Like, I definitely broke uh, my N sixty four controller um, at a certain point uh, playing GoldenEye with friends. <laughs> well, at least it was with friends. That I mean, you know, you can you can uh, you can genuinely say that someone was perhaps cheating or they they covered your eyes or something. You rage quit. <laughs> it's always worse Nobody's if it's against the computer eyes, you know there you know it's or or even no mario kart never drove people apart for me it was it was it was mostly uh a golden eye so like after this period when did you was there like a specific point where you're like i'm gonna i'm gonna make games now this is a thing that i'm gonna actively pursue 
Um, it really wasn't until um, about five years ago uh, that I decided, like, yeah, this is this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a video game. So what happened in the intervening time then? Um, before that. Yeah, before um, that, after Conan 64. <laughs> I, uh, I went to school and I was doing fine arts stuff. I, you know, I always wanted to do something with computers, but I figured, like, let me go to school and learn about, yeah. you know, photography and film and metalworking and painting and all these other things that I've always done and wanted to do, but in a more professional setting. Because it's like, yeah, I'll be a painter or an illustrator or something like that, because video games, that's not a real career, is it? Um, because back then, you know, it was the, the tools just weren't available. Yeah. And I am a very independent person, and I need a lot of control. Um, over my creative outlet and so the prospect of getting into a big studio like even nintendo or something that i really admired didn't really entice me it's like i didn't want to go make the next mega man or the next mario or anything because i didn't want to be a cog in, in yeah. this giant machine it's like i wanted to go do something by myself or with a very small close-knit team to craft an experience or and the best option for me with that was like go make a painting, you know, go be an artist, uh, go write stuff. Cause then I have complete and total control, um, for what I put out and put my name on. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until after I got out of school, out of college and, um, you know, the indie scene had started to really pick up, um, where tools are available like XNA and game maker, um, that I started to realize, Oh, there's a there's a scene for this and then you, you know um john blow came out with his uh grand or well no it was even before that like cave story was kind of the thing that switched on a bit of a light for me i was like this is one dude who after work sat in his apartment and made this video game by himself you know he made from top to bottom every aspect of this game like that's that's fantastic. And it was a, an amazing game. And I was like, huh, okay. That changes my perspective on this stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I actually have the capability of doing that, um, but it changed my perspective. Yeah, it's possible, and, though. It's, it's a right. proven and thing. Then, and so, you know, like I had tried to do, I had tried to make something with a friend way back when in high school. It was like we basically were using um, our own created engine to make a um, command and conquer clone. But, you know, we just, we've sputtered out on that. So I was, I was, and like we tried to make a card game and all this stuff. Like I was always trying to find the right people to make something with when it came to games. Yeah. I just never really could. Um, so it wasn't until, uh, until iOS came out um, and the tools for that, like Coco's 2D and all started to come out that I, um, sat down with a friend and was like, let's make a game. We tried to make a puzzle game and we would do like every weekend we'd get together. And so we were figuring it out and there is, there is something interesting there that never really went anywhere, but it was a good start. Like, Hey, this is possible. The tools are available now. Let me find another person or another crew um, that's actually going to do this. And that's when I started to get into game maker. Cause it's like, obviously I just need to do this by myself because nobody else is going to yeah. do it with me. I just can't find the right people. Um, and I dug into game maker, started going through tutorials, picking other people's games apart and looking at all the tricks. Um, and then I found, uh, through a friend of a friend, um, Bo, who, um, released Samurai Gun a little later after we had met and he was, he's been using game maker forever since he was a kid, basically. Um, 
And so he knew the ins and outs of it, and he'd made a, a million little games, awesome games, freeware, um, small experiences that just felt great. And we're like, yeah, man, let's do that. And so he was teaching me how to use Game Maker and help, and eventually just help prototype Hyperlight with me. That's that's amazing. Um, I want to go back to the the university thing, but before we sort of move on to that, because while you're studying fine art, and you know you you, you have this kind of um, independent drive, like. Did video games factor into any of the the kind of art that you were doing? Do you think, like, stylistically or or, or even like conceptually? Um. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how could they not? Like, um, anime and film and books and everything influenced every piece of art that I made all the time. No, of course. I, I, I just I was thinking of something more like specific. If you if you'd had like uh, a game had kind of had an impression on you, and you 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 use that to maybe try and create that same sensation in another art form, or you know, just using a game as a as a springboard for something else. I mean, in other mediums like art or whatever. No, I mean, for like my own personal fine art stuff, I was doing a lot of um, uh, a lot of illustration and painting focused specifically on my own situation and how I was feeling about just my my health and all that stuff much more than I was about the release of games because um, for me as a release it was it was this escape um, and so I wasn't so focused on how to put that into my art uh, as more focused on like how to express the circumstances that I'm feeling as a human right now when yeah. when creating my own work um, so it wasn't until I started to actually make games or think about making games as like, oh, I can actually work these two together rather than separate them out. Like if I make a video game, I can express these ideas about my own humanity and existence in a way that's important to me. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I I asked this earlier and we kind of, we went off topic, but the reason I was asking about Final Fantasy VI and whether or not you had it in, in any kind of a context, you know, or if you were just experiencing it as a thing on its own is because like playing Hyperlight Drifter you get the sense it certainly gives me the the same sense that I had playing RPGs when I was a kid which is I don't know if I fully understand what's going on here I don't know if I understand all of the the symbols and you're kind of just figuring out as you go and it feels really exciting and kind of alien as well like along with it which you would feel if you were playing something like Final Fantasy 6 for instance and you had no context for this kind of game before yeah, was that like conscious, a conscious choice? Yeah, um, you know, for me, uh, when crafting the game, uh, I specifically wanted to go out of my way. You know, I, Super Metroid was a very formative experience for me, um, as far as games go, because it built this atmosphere. You felt alone, where yeah. you didn't know what was happening, where you had to decipher and infer a lot of things. Like it's a game that asked much of the player and i wanted to create the same kind of feeling um not just of of loneliness and isolation and alienness but just this intense atmosphere that i never got from a game before um and for me with hyperlight it's it's like there's a lot of personal emotion that i've poured into that game and tried to express in it um and the best way to do that was 
by building this atmosphere, by making you feel alone, by, you know, reflecting on the same kinds of achievements that Super Metroid was able to, um, was able to, to express. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's a big keystone for me and, um, one of the biggest influence points for me, um, in games. I mean, do you like the the way you're talking about uh, games as, as worlds, as kind of uh, escapes? Do you have? Is there a game that you kind of turn to as like a, almost like a comfort blanket? I suppose, like some something that you use to kind of take your mind off things. Now, uh, yeah, now, yeah, now, and just in general, like whatever sort of pops into your head. Uh, for me, like for, while I was making Hyperlight for about a year, it was Destiny. Um, because that was something that I could zone out on and I didn't have to worry about um, the objective so much because I kind of knew it inside and out and there wasn't really much story there and it felt really good to just shoot a thing and get away from the world and escape from my own brain for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, with a single-player game or a story-driven game, it's, it's harder to to focus on just like the raw mechanics of something and um it was the same thing for shmups for a long time like the the old arcade shoot 'em ups yeah um where it's like you're just a ship and you get into these zen moments with it because there's no story there really or it's a very thin story and you don't care about the story anyway because it's all about getting these combinations and shooting things perfectly mm-hmm. and navigating between these bullets um to this point where it's it's you it feels immaculate if you do it right and you get this this overwhelming focus where everything else kind of melts away oh it's, it's that's my my absolute favorite thing about video games is is flow states and it is is just really getting lost in the mechanics of something it's like it, it feels more like playing an instrument than you know playing anything else like i, I love that right. feeling is it what what shoot ups um did you enjoy particularly have you got like a favorite um, Dodon Pachi was a, a big one. Um, I would say probably my all-time favorite is Ikaruga. That's I, I spoke to my friend Tony on the show a, a few months ago, and it's, watching somebody else play Ikaruga is his argument for uh, games as art. He said it's the most beautiful thing in the world to see somebody mastering this beautiful thing. It's and it really yeah. is quite amazing, like to see like a high-level play of something like Ikaruga. It's crazy, or even like the Tetris Grandmaster stuff. Oh my goodness, unbelievable! Jesus, what are you? Who are you, monsters? I'm so glad that that exists. It's one of my favorite sort of video game events, and it's become so popular. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, so so in the development of Hyperlight Drifter, like did I mean I'm sure it did. Uh, a better question is like how did that change how you interacted with games and played games? Um, not that much, honestly. I mean, there's, there's a part of me that, of course, became overly analytical about the game's design and the decisions that designers are making and why they did these things. And certain factors of game's design was revealed to me, uh, throughout the course of development where it's like, oh, I bet they did this because of this, or they probably didn't have enough time to finish that. And that's why this feels this way, or this ended up that way. And so... There are certain small revelations here and there, but it wasn't anything that you couldn't really analyze before if you were paying attention. So it's there. I just when I was developing Hyperlight and even now still developing the new games, it's like, oh yeah, there's 
it's hard to turn off the designer part of your brain if that's what you're doing all day long. To go into a game and be like, yep, I'm just going to play a game and enjoy it. It's like, well, I'm going to play this game and then I'm going to think about how it relates to my game yeah. and why they made the decisions and if I can do anything like this or if there's notes here. So I'm like, I'm still constantly taking notes as I'm playing games, which is both enjoyable and really annoying because <laughs> it's hard to just focus. So right now my go-to game for I don't want to take notes, I don't want to think about game design, I don't want to do anything but just play is just Overwatch because it's simple, it's straightforward. I know what I'm doing. I don't there's nothing new in there that I have to analyze or anything like that. Uh Overwatch has been is undoubtedly going to be my game of the year. Who who is your your main in Overwatch if you have one? Um the one that I've played the most of is Farah, but I play pretty much everybody except for Symmetra, and I enjoy a lot. It just depends. I'm one of those people. It's like I'll play the position that's necessary to yeah. succeed. That's weird. Symmetra is one of my my favorites. I do. I, I, I'm I'm a terrible aim, so I, I tend to always go for the, uh, uh, the support classes. Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm a pretty decent aim. So it's I like DPS characters, but I also like tank characters because they're fun to just mow through things. Absolutely. And, I don't play healing classes as much because unless it's uh, Zenyatta, but um, you know, I, I I try and play everything because it's fun. That's part of the fun of that game is I can mix it up and it can be a different experience this time around on this map because I played a character that I rarely play on it. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Like the the the, the way the they've balanced all the characters is is a monumental achievement. It's a wonderful game. Yeah, um, it really is. And I, I was a huge TF2 nerd, so um, you know it carries through and just pretty much straight up takes from TF2 in major ways, which is good um, because TF2 has been kind of out for a while and I haven't played it for a while, but I was, I was deep in TF2 for years, like constantly playing that game. And I still, I still love TF2 more than I love Overwatch just because the writing is amazing in that game. And because the characters themselves, I liked quite a bit more. Um, And I liked how they broke up the classes a little differently, but Overwatch is its own special thing, and I appreciate it quite a bit. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Um, so, like, how how did how did you feel uh, with the the process of making Hyperlight Drifted? Were you were you pleased when it was kind of done and released, and was everything you expected it to be? I suppose to have you know to make this game by yourself, essentially. Um, you know, it was it was a difficult experience in many ways. Um, and I don't, making games is weird and the process of finishing a game is really strange and can be deeply unsatisfying in many ways. Um, you know, I've talked to other developers about this too, and it's, it's common to have this like post-release depression. Um, so what I, what I did experience after the release was mm, a lot of stress. Um, I was still, we were still fixing bugs after the PC release. Um, We were still creating um, patches all the time and we were still finishing some content that we wanted to get in there a month or two or three afterwards. And then we had the console releases coming out um, as soon as possible. So I didn't really have a break after it released. I didn't really have a time to actually relax and celebrate. Like we, we had a, a party, a release party, whatever, but 
even that felt like, okay, we're going to talk about that. We're going to stop talking about this for five minutes and hang yeah. out with friends for a few hours and be like, hooray, release the game. But then it ended up being like, okay, back to work the next day because shit, we got a lot to do still. So it never became, uh, ah, we released the game. Now let's revel in that. Um, and look at the reviews and look at, you know, look at the, our sales and blah, blah, blah. It's always like, okay, it's doing its thing, but we still got more work to do, still got more work to do. And then the Kickstarter itself is kind of one of those things where it's always hanging over my, my shoulders. Like I have a lot to do with the Kickstarter sale for the rest of the year. Yeah. Um, and I'm almost done with that stuff now. And in fact, I'm on my way right now to finish one of the rewards, but it never felt like a punctuation point at any time with the release of the game because it's just this ongoing thing. It's like, it's not finished. Um, or when it is basically, and, and we just released a patch for the 60 frames per second, uh, a month or two ago. And even that is like, cool. We still have bugs to fix. We still have to push that on the pl- on consoles right now. We still have to put on the other platforms like Mac and Linux and GOG and whatever else. So it's like, there hasn't been a finishing point or a punctuation point for Hyperlight where I can say, ah, I've completed my task. Now let me just sit back and crack my fingers and uh, crack my knuckles and uh, just uh, stretch out on the beach or anything like that. So, you know. Is there one on the horizon? Or is it you just now into the next game and that's the cycle started again? I've already, you know, we're already in the next game. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm splitting my time between finishing whatever we have left on Hyperlight, um, including Kickstarter stuff, and then um, ramping up production on the new game. So it's, I don't know. It, I think that's just how it's going to be. Where it's like, cool, we made this thing. That's great. I, I, I've, I've kind of taken things in piecemeal. Where it's like, oh yeah, I can absorb these reviews, and that's cool. I can absorb um, the feedback from players who really enjoy it, and that's great. Um, I can be relieved that finally we're, we we released on the Xbox and PlayStation and I don't have to worry about console ports anymore really except for the patches that we have to do um, in the future because that's always a thing that's going to happen. Um, I think you deserve so, a, a break, Alex. At some point, maybe. <laughs> I so, th- I I, yeah, I don't do. know. I, I don't know how to feel about the release of the game other than like all of the feelings that I've already felt, which is everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds intense. Um, it's, it's extremely intense. And it's, you know, like I canceled the, the Wii U and the Vita. And I think a lot of people are understanding, but there are plenty of upset people. And it's just like, you know, I that decision was not a small decision to make. It wasn't, it wasn't something that I made lightly and said like, ah, fuck it. I'm over it. It's like, no, I really want to release these, these builds, but like, there's so much work involved in doing it. And I just don't have it in me. It's going to kill me because I'm still trying to finish our fucking game. Um, I'm still trying to fulfill the promises we made for Kickstarter and all this other stuff because it's a big game and we're a very small team. And it's just, it's a lot of work. And at some point I need to stop. Has that colored your, um, your approach to the next game? Like, are you aiming bigger or smaller or? No, the next game is bigger as a game, but I'm not doing a Kickstarter. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing any kinds of rewards. Um, I'm not involved with tens of thousands of people every day or every month talking about stuff or worried about fulfillment or whatever else. Like, I'm not going to talk about the game until we're ready to talk about it in a year or two or three or whenever it's ready, you know? Um, 
it's like, yeah, we're working on a new game, and that's all the information that anybody's ever going to get until we're really ready to talk about more and actually put a reveal trailer out there. And we're not going to put a reveal trailer out there until we're ready to pretty much release the game within a decent amount of time, because one of the things on Hyperlight is like, oh, yeah, look at this game, and people are like, it's pretty much done, right? It's like, no, man, this game is far from done. And then it took, you know, two and a half years to actually finish. That's crazy. That's crazy. Um, but are you still like, despite all that, like the the intensity of the situation, is it still an exciting thing for you? Both like video games, like making them and also playing them. Are you are you like you know still as excited as you were? Well, absolutely. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Of course, because it's a crazy man's task. It's a crazy person's task to make video games. <laughs> uh, Especially when you're on a smaller team, but just in, in general, like because it involves so much effort in so many different professions and skill sets from audio to visual to interactive, which is this weird amalgamation of things like the, just the interactive component is, is so ethereal and difficult to define and actually get correct. That alone can be a massive strain on development but like the fact that you're going to throw all these things into a pot and hope it works um and make it work and it takes years and you know thousands of man hours and destroys people's souls and spirits because they work so hard and put so much soul heart and soul into it. it's like it's a complete crazy person's task but you're but still I'm excited a, though yeah but yeah, I'm still I'm still excited <laughs> as fuck because I don't want to do anything else because I'm a crazy fucking person. So. <laughs> that always helps. Hey, well, your name is uh, George... Uh... George Zachary from Silicon Graphics. I was wondering if you could help me out a little bit in explaining the game. Sure, it's, uh, it's, it's a really cool game. It was created on this thing called The Challenge, which is this really advanced supercomputer. Basically, picture 20 supercomputers in a box. Now, with all this technology, am I going to have to buy an adapter for my home Nintendo? Not at all. In fact, uh, when the game was created on the Challenge, it was basically specially output to the Super Nintendo game system. So it basically comes in a cartridge, you stick it in the system, and you play. How do we make the, the roundness, the 3D? Actually, it was created on the, on the Challenge, first in a wireframe. Actually, then you grow shade them. Or you can fong shade them, and then you actually texture map them. And you can even trilinearly bitmap interpolate. That sounds a little dangerous. Uh, and let me ask you this, I heard downstairs something about ACM yeah, technology. Yeah, that's, that's advanced right? computer modeling. Basically what you can do with it is, it lets you create fully realistic, fully rendered 3D graphics. So the person has a sense. Hello. You the new butler? <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um... Oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come yes. in. But, uh, come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Uh... Oh, you're not the uh, poor relation from America, right? <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. What kind of singing? Well, mostly the contemporary stuff. Do you, uh, do you like modern music? Oh, I think it's marvelous. Some of it really fine. But tell me, uh, you ever listen to any of the older fellas? Oh, yeah, sure. I like, uh, John Lennon. And the other one with, uh, Harry Nelson. Ooh, you go back that far, huh? Oh, yeah, I'm not as young as I look. <laughs> None of us is these days. In fact, I've got a six-year-old son. And he really gets excited around the Christmas holiday mm -hmm. thing. Do you go in for any of the traditional things in the 
Boy household Christmas time? Oh yeah, most of them really. Uh, presents, tree, decorations. Agents sliding down the chimney. What? I was just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> Actually, uh, our family do most of the things that other families do. We sing the same songs. Do you? I even have a go at White Christmas. You do, huh? And this one. This is my son's favourite. Do you know this one? Oh, I do indeed. It's a lovely thing. To see pa-rum-pa-pum-pum -pum. Our finest gifts we bring Pa-rum-pa-pum-pum Rum-pa-pum-pum Rum-pa-pum-pum Peace on earth Can it be Years from now Perhaps we'll see our See the day of glory. See the day of living peace. So peace when we come. Be. Mm -hmm. 